And this has massive eschatological implications. One's view of end times should be supremely optimistic, believing that God will subdue the nations. He will conquer regions of Tyre and Sidon, China and Russia, Africa. He's the enthroned king. His weapon is the gospel. It's a double-edged sword. It converts those who embrace it. It condemns those who reject it. God is a man of war, to borrow the language of the Old Testament. He will conquer. He will subdue. He will conquer. He will subdue. This is Andrew Smith pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 10.15 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Amen. Please remain standing and take your copy of God's Word, turning with me to Mark chapter 7 this morning. Mark chapter 7. The title of the message this morning is simply this, Eating the Children's Crumbs. And our text is Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. Let us hear God's Word together. And from there he, that is Jesus, arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated and let's ask him for his grace and help this morning as we look at this text. Our Father, we are grateful for your truth. We're grateful for the clarity of your truth. We're grateful for all of these wonderful stories given by Mark as he writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit to give to us a record of our Lord's life. Father, we pray for wisdom, we pray for the Spirit's guiding this morning, for His power, for His conviction, for His truth to be brought to bear upon our souls this day, for those present and for those watching even online. Lord, bless us with truth, Lord, that will be enduring, truth that we can embrace, realities and promises that we know to be true in our heart of hearts. We pray you would bless us with these assurances this morning. We ask these things in the blessed name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Up to this point, as Mark writes this wonderful gospel for us, he has told us the story, essentially, of Jesus' great Galilean ministry. This was a ministry that lasted well over a year of our Lord's adult life at the young age of about 30 years old as he began his ministry. He ministered there in the region of Galilee. But as we begin here in chapter 7, verse 24, Mark shifts gears and begins to tell us of what 
theologians refer to as Jesus' retirement ministry, along with his Perean ministry. This goes from about Mark 7.24 all the way to chapter 10 and verse 52. Now, if you're looking for approximate dates of Jesus' retirement ministry, this occurred uh, probably in the month of April, AD 29, to about October. And then his Perean ministry from about December, AD 29, to April, AD 30. Uh, There is an intervening period in there referred to as his Judean ministry, which took place in October of 29 to December of 29, that Mark doesn't mention, but the Gospel of John does mention the events that occur there. Now, these are somewhat artificial um, distinctions of the ministry of our Lord, indicated by the fact that he went to different regions for different purposes. The beginning of verse 24 states that the commencement of Jesus's what we call retirement ministry says that he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. This was a period that we call in the life of our Lord his retirement ministry, not because he was retiring from ministry or stopping ministry, but because he was leaving the hustle and bustle of Capernaum, which was located in Galilee, and he was leaving that largely Jewish region to go to a Gentile region, to get away from the crowds, to be alone with the 12 disciples. He knows that the cross is not far off. Already the Jewish authorities are accusing him of being demonic because he didn't follow their traditions. Moreover, King Herod is fearful that Jesus' theology and influence introduces a threat to his political power. And so this opposition against Jesus is mounting and he knows it. So he heads off to Gentile territory to sort of retire away from the crowds. But he doesn't stop ministry. He ministers to the Gentiles in this region. And even when he goes back into the Jewish region later on in his Judean ministry, this is a marked shift in his ministry because he removes a a focus on the crowds and begins to focus more on the 12 apostles. We even see this in chapter 8 and verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Or chapter 9 and verse 31, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise again. Or again, chapter 10 and verse 33, we are going up to Jerusalem, he says to the disciples, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise again. Jesus wants the apostles to understand that his time on earth is very short. But during his stay in these Gentile regions, as he ministers to the disciples and tries to spend alone time with them to clarify his ministry and the purpose of his mission, he has opportunities where he encounters Gentiles and he ministers to these Gentiles. This again is where we need to think very clearly about the fact that although Mark is writing a biography of our Lord's life, Mark is also a theologian and he is writing with theological purpose. He wants us to understand and he wants the Gentile believers that he's writing to to be assured that God's salvation through Christ was never ultimately meant for ethnic Israel alone. His gospel was meant for the nations. And Mark uh, presses this point home 
uh, throughout his gospel. If you go with me to chapter 14 and verse 9, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, that wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This is when Jesus was anointed in Bethany in that wonderful demonstration of love with the ointment. Jesus says, this gospel will be, be proclaimed in the whole world and people will know of this occasion. Jews and Gentiles alike. Or Mark chapter 16 and verse 15, he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. There is a new creation that is being formed by the gospel that will include Jews and Gentiles and the covenantal promises of God that is attached to the Abrahamic covenants and therefore these Jewish apostles must go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. Already in the early days of the church, as Mark writes, there are Jewish converts confused about the place of Gentile believers. Do they need to follow the ceremonial regulations? Do they need to follow the ceremonial dietary laws? Do they need to be circumcised in order to be part of God's true people, to be truly saved? Mark wants to draw out the theology of the Old Testament pointing to God's intentions to save all kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles, but here's the point, they all must come through Christ. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life to the Father. There is not salvation found in any other name. Salvation does not occur by following the law of God following the extra-biblical standards of the Pharisees, following the extra-biblical standards of the Judaizers. Salvation does not occur because one is baptized or one is circumcised or because one partakes of the Lord's Supper. One is not saved automatically because they are Jew and one is automatically not saved because they are a Gentile. No, all must come through the door who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Even in the Old Testament, this was predicted and promised. God told ethnic Israel in Exodus 19.6 that he intended them to be a kingdom of priests who would tell the nations of the salvation blessings of God to all the families of the earth. And in fact, Psalm 67 declares, let all the peoples praise you, let all the nations be glad and sing for you. This was something that was often missed by ethnic Jews in the Old Covenant, thinking that God's salvation was only meant for them. But when Paul, the Jewish apostle, comes on the scene, he devotes much ink to this very reality that God's salvation was never merely meant for ethnic Israelites. And he quotes the Old Testament in Galatians 3.8. You don't have to turn there, but just listen. Paul says, The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel before him to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. This was something that God told Abraham, that in you all the nations of the world would be blessed. That was God's mission and purpose from the beginning, God told Abraham in Genesis that in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice over and over again. Genesis 26, 4, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. I will give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed. 
Genesis 28 and verse 14. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And Paul was clear in the book of Galatians that all who have the faith of Father Abraham are part of his offspring. All of those who have believed like Abraham believed. He looked forward to the promised Messiah and Christians in the new covenant who look back to the Messiah are part of Abraham's family tree. The Old Testament clearly predicted that when the Messiah came, God's mission would begin to be realized on a mass scale. God was going to do it whether the Jews cooperated with him or not. Isaiah 49.6, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant? That is the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to restore the preserved ones of Israel. There would be a remnant who would be saved. But then Isaiah 49, 6 says, I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So mark it that Mark himself and Scripture as a whole present to us Jesus the Messiah as the true Israel, the obedient Israel who would do what ancient Israel didn't do, he would be a light to the nations so that God's salvation blessings would extend to all the families of the earth to fulfill the promises of God. Paul would tell Gentile believers in Ephesians 2.12 that at one time they were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The implications of which meant that through their conversion to Christ, these Gentile believers and their families were now part of the commonwealth of Israel. They were part of Abraham's family. And in Romans, you're familiar with it, Romans 9 through 11, Paul even describes Gentile believers as wild olive branches that are grafted into God's family tree. Jesus for his part, always operated according to the Father's timetable and the Father's will. As the second person of the Godhead, he knew the mission and purpose of God because of the covenant of redemption that he was in with the Holy Spirit and God the Father before the foundation of the world to save and elect people from the north and the south and the east and the west. Therefore, he is not escaping the mounting opposition in Galilee from the religious leaders in order to avoid death but rather to prepare the disciples for their worldwide mission when the time came for him to be arrested and killed because they didn't understand the purpose of the gospel reaching the world. It's not by coincidence, therefore, that the previous story recorded in Mark 7, verses 14 through 23, revealed the hostility of the religious leaders toward Jesus due to issues surrounding uncleanness and ritual defilement. That was the issue with the Jews. We're clean, everyone else is dirty. God has come to save us because we have religiously made ourselves clean. Gentiles are dirty. Gentiles are dogs. We are God's children. Well, this next story of Jesus, his encounter with the Syrophoenician woman stands in contrast to that. The tradition of the elders saw no place for Gentiles in God's scheme. They trusted in their religious heritage, the law of God, their adherence to extra-biblical rules and regulations to achieve salvation. But in contrast, this woman, this Gentile woman, this Gentile woman from a pagan land has nothing of that. The blood of Abraham does not flow through her veins. She knows nothing of the tradition of the elders. She doesn't even recognize the law of God that was given to the people of God, but she had one thing none of them had, and that was simple faith in Christ as Lord and Savior. 
Jesus withdraws to this unclean Gentile region. He associates with this unclean Gentile woman to begin his journey in this unclean region in order to teach the disciples that their mission will include Jews first, admittedly, but not to forget the Gentiles. This is part of the purpose and the plan of God. Jews would not associate with Gentiles for fear of uncleanness. But what did Jesus say in the previous passage? He declared that all foods were clean. The issue was not foods that make you unclean. The issue was every soul is unclean. Every soul is unclean. Those Old Testament laws of cleanliness, food laws, laws associated with cleansing yourself even with water, although they were perverted and abused by the tradition of the elders. There were legitimate laws about cleanliness. All of those were passing away with the days of the old covenant because the kingdom of God was at hand. Jesus was establishing the new covenant in which he would, in an ever-expansive way, embrace unclean Gentiles because here's the reality. Even Jews are unclean in their heart of hearts. God did not save them because they were clean. Abraham was a pagan. God chose them out of the world just like he chooses Gentiles out of the world. And in our story, we see this woman washed clean by the gospel through her faith. The elders of Israel were clean outwardly but not inwardly. This woman was dirty outwardly but cleansed inwardly. Through the agency of her faith, that is her simple trust, and the object of her faith, who was Christ. In Joshua chapter 19, God had originally said that the children of Israel were to conquer this very region. To the tribe of Asher was given the region of Tyre and Sidon. Israel did not obey God in conquering that region. So now Jesus, the true Israelite, will conquer this land. He will conquer Gentile souls in this land as a foreshadowing of his conquering of the nations through the worldwide mission of the apostles. Here's the point of the story. Before this woman met Jesus, this Syrophoenician woman was a stranger to the covenants of promise. She was without God and without hope in the world, but Jesus allowed her to eat the crumbs of the children of Israel to have her place around the table of God's Israelite family. And so Mark writes to us to remind us and to remind his Gentile readers that if we humble ourselves even to receive the breadcrumbs that fall from the table of the children of Israel, God will bless us with salvation. He honors a penitent heart, a repentant heart that has true faith, but he rejects a legalistic, religious-oriented work salvation, even if you come from a religious heritage and religious pedigree. Faith is required and faith in Christ alone. So in this story, Mark holds up the faith of the Syrophoenician woman as evidence that Jesus, the bread coming down from heaven, is meant for Gentiles as well, and that God intends for Gentiles to have their place in the family of God, enjoying table fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This heartwarming scene unfolds to us in five parts. First of all, we see in verse 24 the disclosed location. Secondly, the desperate supplication, verses 25 and 26. Third, the dog illustration, verse 27. Fourth, the daring expectation, verse 28. And fifth, the determined confirmation, verses 29 and 30. And it begins by telling us of Jesus' whereabouts, which is key to properly understanding 
why Mark is giving this story. Notice with me in verse 24, the disclosed location. Verse 24 tells us, and from there, from where? That is Galilee, where Jesus had ministered for well over a year. From there, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, that verb went in verse 24 is not the normal Greek word, ekerstai. It's actually a stronger Greek word, apelthen, which indicates a decided and strategic and forceful departure. This is something Jesus is pursuing. With Calvary ahead of him, the religious leaders on his heels, Jesus arises from Galilee. He travels some 20 miles northwest of Capernaum, as verse 24 says, towards Tyre. And Tyre was located in the Gentile territory, referred to as Phoenicia back then, or Syrophoenicia. It's modern-day Lebanon. Tyre, that city, we'll start with that city. It was an ancient seaport of the Phoenicians. It was composed of actually two cities, a coastal city on the mainland, and then beside it, a small island city just off the, the shore. The, the um, rocky mountains of Lebanon were sort of the backdrop of this coastal city. Tyre's sister city was Sidon. It was about 25 miles away, also located along the coast. And it was the oldest of all the Phoenician cities. So influential that in the 3rd BC, 3rd century BC, when Alexander the Great was conquering people, he was welcomed by the citizens of Sidon who then joined his army to go besiege Tyre, its sister city. But this region was a thoroughly pagan region. We don't know exactly what cities Jesus has visited except that he was in the region of Tyre and Sidon as verse 24 says. But when we read the Old Testament, we understand these, this was a region full of pagans. During the days of the judges, they oppressed Israel. This was the region that was the home of Jezebel, who influenced pagan practices in the northern kingdom of Israel. It was her father, Ethbaal, who was uh, from Sidon. And in fact, it was another prophet a thousand years earlier, namely Elijah, who escaped wicked Ahab in this very region because of Israel's drought. He goes to this region. He met there a widow a woman, the woman of Zarephath, we read about her earlier. Here we see the prophet of prophets, just like Elijah, going to this region to now prepare his disciples for his mission. This pagan region, Tyre was responsible for introducing Baal worship. Baal was the chief god, but Ashtoreth was the goddess of fertility and Israel also worshipped her. Because of this checkered history of the people of Tyre and Sidon in this region influencing Israel in her pagan ways, Israel absolutely hated anyone in this region. But Psalm 87.4 predicted that the people of Tyre would share in the blessings of the Messianic age. And before our eyes here in verse 24, we are going to see this morning those blessings come about through Jesus who is going to interact with this woman. This prophecy of Psalm 87.4 that the blessings of the Messianic age would come to the people of Tyre was partially fulfilled. We saw in Mark 3.8 when the people of this region went to hear Jesus preach and he healed them. They went to him, but now he's going to them to communicate to the disciples that the gospel is meant for Gentiles. He's traveling to them. 
And we continue to read in verse 24 that when he got there, he entered a house and he did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. Whose house he went in, we don't know, but we know that he's inside some house. And we know that for the time being, he doesn't want anyone to know that he's there, and that is because he has come to prepare the disciples for the missionary activity that he is going to do in this region and that he expects them to do once he is gone, once he is delivered up upon the cross. But no matter how hard he tried, verse 24 says he could not be hidden. His popularity was at an all-time high. Even in a Gentile region, uh, the people of this region knew of him. They had went to seek him and his miracles. Jesus, no matter how hard he tried to hide, was like a bright light shining in this region. He could not be hidden. He could not be hidden. This is a nod, I think, from Mark to Isaiah 49.6. He would be a light to the nations so that his salvation would reach to the ends of the earth. So that Habakkuk 2.14 could be fulfilled. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Nothing can stop the light of the gospel from expanding in God's world that has been cursed by the darkness of sin. So Jesus tries to hide. His light shines too bright. The woman finds him. The woman finds him. If you go back with me just for a moment to Mark chapter 4, Remember what Jesus said in verse 21. He said to them, As a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand, for nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. Anyone who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is Jesus going to the Gentiles to bring them salvation, so that, or going to the Gentiles to bring them salvation, so that when he's gone, the disciples will pick up the baton so that the gospel will reach the nations of the world. So verse 24 really sets up the scene with the disclosed location. But suddenly we see in verses 25 and 26, number 2, the desperate supplication. We move from the disclosed location to the desperate supplication. Notice with me in verse 25, but although he was trying to hide, he couldn't. Immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. It says immediately. I mean, this, this is before Jesus has time to unpack, as it were, and settle in. This woman who is desperate, who has a little daughter with an unclean spirit, comes to him. It's likely she herself had never traveled to Galilee like others to hear him because the text says she had only heard of him. This is faith. She had never met Jesus. She had never seen Jesus. She had heard of him. She had heard of his miracle working power. She had heard of his preaching of salvation. She knew enough about his healings, his exorcisms, to know that he could help her daughter. As I said, it was in this very same region that the widow of Zarephath had her son raised from the dead by Elijah. We don't know if this woman was a widow or not. The text doesn't mention anything about her husband, but what we do know, she didn't have a son, she had a daughter who was ill. Ill with demons, ravaging her soul and her body. Unclean spirits. So note how she approaches Jesus. Verse 25 says, she came and fell down 
at his feet. She was in her moment of greatest desperation, wasn't she? She makes herself vulnerable before Jesus as she lay prostrate before him. But she was also vulnerable because she was placing herself as a Gentile woman in the presence of a Jewish rabbi. And let me just tell you, from a socio-religious standpoint, this was categorically unacceptable. A woman, a Gentile, a Syrophoenician, pagan? This just didn't happen. This woman was desperate. And so we read in verse 26, now the woman was a Gentile. Mark wants us to know her desperation. This didn't happen. A Gentile woman didn't do this sort of thing. And she was a Syrophoenician by birth. And notice Mark just piles on the marks against her. This Gentile woman who's from a pagan territory begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. I mean, here is a whole bunch of marks against her. First of all, she was a woman. Women did not approach men in this culture. Understand that. And while Jews thought of Gentiles as dogs, guess what? Gentiles thought of shameless and audacious women as dogs. And certainly, her approach to Jesus was audacious to say the least. Any observers that would have been standing around, Jew or Gentile, would have referred to her as a dog. How dare her, this dog, the Jews would say, Gentile. How dare her, the Gentiles would say, this shameful, brazen woman, She's a dog. There was a sect of rabbis called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. I've told you about them before. They were called that because anytime they saw a woman in public, they would cover their eyes and inevitably bump into something. These bruises, they arrogantly thought, were moral marks of superiority. But in reality, they were pious indications of a showmanship, I'm more spiritual than you sort of sexual ethics. They didn't, they didn't mess with women. They didn't get around women. On the contrary, Jesus always is in the context with other women. Not in any sort of inappropriate way, but in a way that says there's something about your culture that is off. We are to be merciful to all. Perhaps these Pharisees, the bruised and bleeding Pharisees, thought that the bruises made them ugly enough that women would avoid their hideous looks. I don't know. But here is this woman approaching Jesus, a man, taboo. But not only that, she was not only a woman. As I said, notice verse 26 says, she was also a Gentile. This meant she was a double dog. Not merely a woman, but a Gentile. And then third, Mark just piles the marks against her. He says that she was a Syrophoenician by birth. As already indicated, she came from the worst pagan variety surrounding Israel's long history. She was from the same area Jezebel was from. She was a dog by every account. Syrophoenician, uh, because um, by her day, Phoenicia had been annexed to Syria by Roman general Pompey in the year 65 BC. So it was often referred to as the Syrophoenician region. But interestingly, Matthew 15.22 says that she was a descendant of the Canaanites. Those were the arch enemies of Israel. In fact, Exodus 23 says, they are the ones that God himself will blot out. They are the ones that Deuteronomy 7.2 says about the Canaanites, that Israel was 
to devote the Canaanites to complete destruction and make no covenant with them and show them no mercy at all as they entered the promised land. That was this woman, thoroughgoing pagan. But I want you to see the Lord's going to take advantage of this opportunity. At first, he appears to ignore her, doesn't he? In order to teach the disciples that God's salvation was meant for the nations, his elect from the nations were not to be withheld, listen to this, from covenantal association if they possessed true saving faith. That's the point. That's the point. And like the widow of Zarephath in Elijah's day, who didn't figure to have enough ingredients to share a meal with the prophet, but had enough faith to at least try it, this woman is begging Jesus for a certain type of meal. Now at first, she couches her language that is related to her desperate situation regarding her daughter. Notice verse 26 says, she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. She's beginning at that sort of superficial point. I want to be connected to you, Jesus, because you have the power to do what no one else can do. But understand that behind that, desperation is an implicit faith. She understands his identity as Savior. In the previous account, Jesus made it clear that food itself outside of the body does not make one unclean. It's souls within people. This woman's daughter had an unclean spirit in her soul, a demon. She knew that only Jesus could rid her daughter and cleanse her daughter from this demon. And you remember, let's not forget the context, Mark's primary source for this material is the Apostle Peter. Peter had a real hard time dealing with laws of cleanliness you remember his experience with Cornelius in Acts 10, whom he viewed as someone unclean that he couldn't associate with until the Lord opened his eyes and caused him to say in Acts 10, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. That was Peter. Peter is Mark's source. This woman is doing what is right. Jesus is welcoming to her as the account unfolds, we'll eventually see, because of her desperation. She comes in humble prostration. She comes with a humble plea. And she comes with humble penitence. This is not just seeking her daughter to be freed from a deacon, demon. <laughs> I used to be a Baptist. We'd always call demon, I mean deacons meetings. That just kind of slips out. Sorry about that. Flip back with me to Matthew 15. I've got to run out of that quick. Matthew chapter 15. Because uh, this is the parallel account. And Matthew adds a little bit more color to what's going on here. Matthew 15 verse 22. Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Notice this. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Have mercy, not just upon my daughter, but upon me. She understands she's unclean. She understands she's a sinner. And like the scribes and Pharisees. As a Gentile, this is a shocking admission. She calls him Lord. She calls him son of David. Those are titles infused with the Jewish mindset that he's the Messiah. She's coming to him as her savior. 
And Jesus was seemingly ignoring this woman. In fact, the disciples were so convinced. Matthew 15, 23 says, His disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away because she's shouting at us. This woman is annoying us. Get rid of her. I mean, Jesus is ignoring her, so they think that's an indication that he wants rid of her. This woman is interrupting his alone time with the disciples. No doubt, by this point, Jesus had communicated to them. That's why he brought them out in this Gentile region. But it's important to understand that Jesus wasn't being cruel. Very, very critical. He's simultaneously stretching her faith to the breaking point in order to do two things. Number one, prove the sincerity of it. And number two, to teach the disciples a lesson. That Gentiles shall be received into the kingdom of God if they have faith in Christ. Remember Jesus' words to the Roman centurion, also a Gentile, one who had a paralyzed servant. Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Why did he say that? Because, let me put it to you simply, he had not found such great faith among anyone in Israel. It's a provocative statement to say, you Israelites need to have the faith of this Gentile because that's what's going to get you in the kingdom. Right now, you're out of the kingdom. You can't help but think of that account as we read this. On the one hand, her desperate supplication stands in stark contrast to outwardly religious, clean leaders who arrogantly accused Jesus that he was a demon, had demons, rather than bow to him. Not this woman. She prostrates herself before Jesus. She humbly begs for his help. She refers to him as Lord and Son of David, asking for mercy. Listen, if you've always wondered who that woman was in Luke chapter 18 in that parable of the unjust judge who finally gave the woman what she begged for. Who was that woman? This is that woman. This is that woman. She is begging for mercy. And in fact, Matthew 15, 25 reveals she knew his identity. She believed him to be who he claimed to be, the Messiah and Lord, because it says she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. Bow down as proskuneo. It means to worship. To worship. Disciples don't understand what she's doing, but Jesus does. This woman is prostrating herself before Jesus in an act of total devotion, total worship, total faith, and Jesus, the Messiah. And before we go any further, let me just tell you that you must be like this woman in order to receive God's salvation. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You must be a spiritual beggar. You must be as desperate as this woman. You must feel as unworthy as this woman. You must see your uncleanness as this woman did. Apart from Christ, we are slaves of Satan. Whether we're possessed by demons or not, we are in the kingdom of darkness apart from Christ. This woman epitomizes the type of faith that God looks for, a penitent, humble, desperate trust, not taking no as an answer, She has nowhere else to turn. Listen, your theology doesn't have to be perfect. This woman barely understood Judaism. She understood just enough to believe who Jesus claimed he was in all of her imperfection. She pleads with him. She cries out to him for salvation. And I want you to know this morning that if you know you need salvation, you cry out to him now 
You don't wait until the end of the service. You cry out in your heart of hearts. You bow to Christ now in your heart. You confess to him your uncleanness, your need for him, your love for him. Beg him for his mercy until you receive such assurance. That's the type of faith that saves. And that's the type of faith that ultimately saved this woman. But now we come to an often misunderstood portion of this story. It's unfortunate because without understanding verse 27 and really what follows that, we'll miss the whole point of this incident. But we move, number one, from the disclosed location and the desperate supplication, number three, to the dog illustration. Verse 27, notice your Bibles. And here's his response. He said to her, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. Now, admittedly, such a statement leaves us scratching our heads. This doesn't appear to be in character with our ever gentle and patient Lord. But I think it's unnecessary to question the good intentions of Jesus' motives when we understand this to be a parable. Jesus was a teacher. Jesus was a master of illustrations. This is an illustration. In all of his illustrations, what did Jesus do? What were illustrations? Illustrations were earthly analogies to illustrate important theological truths. And when Jesus gave those parables, he often made shocking and offensive statements to press the point home. Would this woman be offended at Jesus' words? Would she stumble or would her faith persevere? Would she, would, would she be offended like the rich young ruler? What did Jesus say? You need to obey every law. He wasn't teaching work salvation. He said it to make a point. You think you can do it, go ahead and do it. You can't do it. He had no faith. He thought he was obedient. He thought he was obedient to all the laws. He thought he didn't need salvation. On the face of it, in our text, it would appear that Jesus begins this encounter with a woman with a sort of indifferent spirit. And it's been said that the opposite of love is not hatred but indifference because indifference toward another communicates that person is not worth one's time or energy. That appears to be exactly what Jesus does. I mean, notice verse 27 again. He says, let the children be fed first for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Is he saying this to the woman? Or is he saying it to the disciples who are asking Jesus to send her away? Either way, she heard it, okay? She heard what he said, and he wanted her to hear what he said. Jesus makes this seemingly indifferent comment to brush her off, and um, that leaves us asking, what in the world do we make of this? Well, it's true enough that it's impossible for us to see our Lord's face as he makes this comment. Did our Lord have a twinkle in his eye? Did our Lord possess a half smile? We don't know. We're not told. However, I believe, based upon her response in verse 28, which we'll see in a moment, this is a playful, nonverbal interaction between Jesus and this woman. To be sure, Jesus is not playing games. Salvation is not a joking matter. It's one of life and death. Yet Jesus knows how to deal with people. That's the point. Ever tender, ever compassionate, always stooping to their level when they have stooped before him in humility. 
Jesus meant what he said, so how do we interpret it? Well, remember, Jesus sought this trip to be one that he shared with the disciples primarily, fellowship with his disciples. Remember, his family, his physical family at this point has left him estranged. They've rejected him. And so Jesus is essentially saying to this woman in verse 27, should I as the head of my family interrupt my family fellowship and instead of feeding them, feed the dogs, referring to the woman. This point was theological because he was the bread from heaven. He was sent to the Jews first. Even the Apostle Paul would later remark on this in Romans 1.16, for the gospel is for the Jew first and then the Gentile. And as you know, Jews view Gentiles as dogs. It was a pejorative term. Jesus clearly didn't share this racist sentiment. In fact, Paul would refer to his fellow Jews who were false teachers in the church as dogs. Jesus didn't mean this in a racist way, but remember throughout the Old Testament, dogs were viewed with strong contempt. They were associated with uncleanness. The very issue that the religious leaders have with Jesus. They... uh, were typically feral pests that stalked the streets, eating garbage, scavenging for what they could find, even feeding off dead bodies, as the Old Testament says. Dogs were also a title often used to apply to those who were worthless. Isaiah 56.10 speaks about the worthless leaders of Israel who were dogs. Jesus himself even warned against casting what is sacred to the dogs in Matthew 7, 6. Jews were considered by Gentiles to be dogs, the most miserable creatures in existence. This woman was not a member of the household of Israel. She was not a child of Abraham physically. She was a Gentile dog. But as I said, this is nonverbal language. The tone of Jesus' voice can't be picked out of the text. But there is one clue here that he's being playful with this woman. And it is, notice, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now the word for a wild dog is the Greek word kion. And that's not the word Jesus uses. He uses the Greek word kanerion which actually refers to small dogs that are part of a household, pets. In fact, the New King James actually takes some liberty, if you're using that, to add the adjective little to the word dogs in this verse, to translate it little dogs. This is a way for the translators to express that the word dog is in the diminutive form, the diminutive form, which denotes something smaller in size and something usually that one has affection toward something one has intimacy toward. So little dogs that Jesus speaks about were household pets considered part of the household and often living indoors with the family and eating from the table, or at least the crumbs. As you can see, Jesus is not shutting the door of his household to this woman. He's left it cracked open because often members of a family would wipe their hands on leftover bread using that bread as napkins, and then throw it to the dogs to eat in an affectionate, intimate sort of way of saying you're part of our family. Now there are many times, and this is perhaps helpful for you, there are many times that someone 
may make a compliment to me about my sons. My sons are always with me everywhere I go. And so sometimes compliments are made in the presence of my sons. They might say something nice about them and I may jokingly say something like, I guess they're okay for a bunch of knuckleheads. Then the next day I'm driving in my car and a knucklehead cuts me off and I say, that knucklehead. Context matters. In the first context, it is a term of affection, playful interaction. In the second, I assure you, I'm dead serious. (laughs) Knuckleheads always cut me off. Jesus' theological point, don't miss this, is piggybacking on the Jews who are referred to as the children of God throughout Scripture, right? Because they were children of Abraham, they were God's children by covenant, and anyone else were considered dogs. Jesus is saying here in verse 27, I need to first make sure the children are satisfied. They're my first priority. My job is to preach the gospel to the kingdom, or to to those who are of the children of Abraham. In fact, uh, just skip back with me to Matthew chapter 10, just, just briefly, very quickly, Mark, uh, Matthew 10, what does Jesus say? Verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them to go nowhere among the Gentiles, or to enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, proclaim to them the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The gospel is first meant to go to the Jews. That's what Paul said, as I said, in Romans 1.16. In fact, uh, in Mark chapter 6, when Jesus sent out the twelve, we read in verse 10 these words. He said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. This is partially for judgment on Israel, that the towns of Israelites, the villages of Israelites, that dust of those villages that got on the disciples' feet when they rejected the gospel, that dust was shaken off. Jesus said in John 6, 35, you know it well, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. And John 6.33, for the true bread is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus was not shutting the door to this Gentile woman. He was leaving it open. And his point is saying, first the children must eat. I've got to prepare my disciples. But I'm not shutting the door in your face. The gospel is meant. Christ, the bread of life, is meant for Gentiles who have faith. He's implying to this woman, the door is open. Do you have enough faith to push it open and to come into the kingdom of God? So, notice what happens. She refuses to give up. This sort of playful illustration where Jesus leaves the door open, she understands. She gets what Jesus is saying. And so we move from the disclosed location and the desperate supplication and the dog illustration, number 4, verse 28, to the daring expectation. This woman is so bold in her faith, she dares to expect that door is cracked and as a dog, she can weasel her way in underneath the table. 
to receive some crumbs. If she had misunderstood Jesus or lacked full faith, she would have never been so bold to say what she says in verse 28. Look at your Bible. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. I understand. I get what you're saying. Yet, even the little dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Simple definition of faith is taking Christ at his word. It's as if this woman is saying to Jesus, Lord, if you're calling me to yourself by calling me a little dog, then you know what? I guess that's what I am. I'm happy with that. But you know as well as I do that little dogs are allowed in the household. They are given the crumbs from the table. Hebrews 11.6 says it's impossible to please God without what? Without faith. Her statement pleased the Lord because it revealed her faith. She gave the answer Jesus was looking for. As one commentator puts it, this exchange between Jesus and the woman is a duel of wits. She's playfully responding to his illustration because He had met her where she was, a humble, penitent sinner seeking salvation. She doesn't care what place she has in the kingdom. She's happy to be a dog as long as she's in the house. Under the table, she'll take the crumbs. She knew Jesus wasn't shutting the door to his household. Because skip back to verse 27. Notice again what Jesus says. Let the children be fed first. That's right, first. They get first priority. But it doesn't mean there's not going to be any Gentile priority. This woman as a Gentile represents all believing Gentiles invited into the household of Abraham in the new covenant to receive the blessings of God. Now let me just say this. There are not two households. There's one. There's not a believing household for Jews and a believing household for Gentiles. These aren't two separate people. There's one people of God. They all belong to Abraham. They all receive the same blessings. But there's more here. God's acceptance of Gentile believers like this woman, as I said, was a partial judgment on Israel. The disciples themselves would shake the dust off their feet. But Jesus himself would pronounce woes on certain cities. I'm sure that you're familiar with this. He said, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Jesus says, Chorazin and Bethsaida, judgment upon you is more severe. Jesus didn't perform the type of works in Tyre and Sidon that he performed there. And yet this little Gentile woman has the faith those people didn't have. God's blessings would leave Jewish villages and they would go to Gentile regions like Tyre and Sidon. Remember, we mentioned Elijah earlier, almost 1,000 years prior to this. He raised a widow's daughter in this same region. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus brings up that account. He mentions that event to make a point. The point is that some Gentiles in the Old Testament received blessings from the prophets of Israel. Some did. Like the widow of Zarephath in Sidon. In the Old Testament, God's salvation blessings largely fell on Israel. 
because it was to them that were given the law, the commandments, the oracles of God. But from time to time, the crumbs of salvation from the Jewish table fell into the hungry souls of Gentiles who were penitent and humble and came to God that way. With the coming of Christ, the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, the church became international. This incident we're reading about this morning foreshadows the salvation blessings poured on the Gentiles, their conversions through the ever-expansion of God's kingdom with the Spirit of God poured out, reaching the nations of the world. The disciples don't get that. This woman has better theology. She knows that he could and would exercise the demons from her daughter. She knows that he is the son of David. He is the Messiah. She understands the incorporation of Gentile believers into the family of God or the household of God. She understands to a degree in simple faith, not the details of it, But in simple faith, this God, this Jesus, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. There's something about Jesus, something about his compassion, something about his grace, something about his mercy that she knew she would be welcomed into his presence, into his kingdom by the grace and the mercy of God. In that sense, she had a better theology than the disciples, even though the disciples could regurgitate the Old Testament front and back. They didn't properly apply it. She gets it as little as she knew. She understood in her moment of desperation only Jesus could save. But there's something more here in her response in verse 28. Notice it again. Yes, Lord, Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She recognizes there's a difference between children and dogs, but Jesus, back in verse 27, had used the the Greek word technon for children, which literally means a biological child. When she uses the word uh, in verse 28, translated children's, she uses the Greek word pedion, which is a more general term for children. The implication being that ethnic biological distinctions are not the main issue. She understands that. She understands that in God's household, there is this non-biological inclusion of other people who come by faith. God's covenantal scheme prophesied the inclusion of non-biological children who had faith that Jesus would be a light to the nations. First, he would restore the tribes of Jacob, Isaiah 49. Then he would be a light to the nations. Apparently, she's understanding this to some degree. And as a Gentile little dog, she is viewed as a house pet, part of the same household, eating the same food as the children from the same table, in the same household. She'll take the crumbs. She'll take whatever she can get. She just wants to be part of the household. In fact, in keeping with Mark's theological purposes in writing, that term feed in verse 28, yet even the dogs under the table feed or eat the children's crumbs. It's corazzo, or excuse me, cortazzo is the Greek word there, 
The only other place that it's used in Mark is in connection with the feeding of the 5,000 and then later the feeding of the 4,000. Feeding of the 5,000 we already saw in chapter 6, verse 42. In chapter 8, when we get to that, we'll see the feeding of the 4,000. Here's what you need to know. Feeding of the 5,000 was largely a Jewish crowd. The feeding of the 4,000 in chapter 8 is largely Gentile. The story, therefore, is likely this story of this woman, a theological bridge connecting God's people to what they eat. What do they eat? They eat the bread of life, and therefore, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Male and female, slave or free. That's the theology behind this. Mark is not just a biographer. He's a theologian. He wants you to understand this. When little dogs eat the crumbs from the table, they are not stealing food from the children. They're eating the same food in the same household. The dogs receive the overflow of food, but it comes from the same household, the same table, the same provider of bread, who is Jesus, the very bread of life. That's the point. And that point is pressed home in the final part of the story. We move from the disclosed location, the desperate supplication, the dog illustration, the daring expectation, now to the determined confirmation. Verses 29 and 30. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Jesus had so much control over the supernatural realm. Since his victory over the devil in the wilderness, he didn't even need to go with her to heal this daughter, to cast the demons out. And she reveals her strong faith by trusting what he said was true. That walk home was a walk of faith as she found the child laying on the bed, as the text says, the demon having left. She trusted him enough to walk home to see it happen. And based on her response, Jesus determined to confirm the woman's faith by healing her daughter. Flip back with me one more time to Matthew chapter 15. Again, Mark is giving the highlights. Matthew adds color. Matthew 15, verse 28. What happens here at the end of the account is staggering. Verse 28. After her response, Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Instantly. There is no doubt the woman was resting in Christ as Savior. How great is your faith, Jesus says. How great is your faith. She's resting in Christ her Savior. The daughter is resting from the torture of the demon. Her daughter was freed from Satan's power. The woman was freed from sin's power. And is there any good reason to doubt that this daughter was told by her mother of the new household of faith to which they were both now associated? I can't help but think of Matthew 8 again. The words of Jesus to another Gentile, namely the Roman centurion, he had that paralyzed servant at home. Did Jesus go? No, he said, he healed from a distance, just like this one. But listen to what Jesus told him, this Gentile. He said, go home as you believed. He had faith too. So let it be done for you. I'll heal your servant. And then listen to this. He says, many, I tell you, shall come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Table fellowship. Feeding off the bread of life. 
Another Gentile, part of the family of God, receiving the manna out of heaven, Christ. Part of the great provision of salvation. Then Jesus says, but the sons of the kingdom shall be cast out into the most distant darkness. Israel, you will be judged for rejecting this Messiah. This gospel will go to the nations. What did Jesus say in John 10? He said, I also have other sheep which do not belong to this fold, Gentiles. Them also I must lead and they will listen to my voice and they will become one flock with what? One shepherd. One flock, one shepherd, one household, one bread, one people of God, the promises of God intact to this one people, Jew and Gentile, who have faith in Christ. Here's the reality. This woman knew she wasn't really a dog. Jesus knew that. She was a little sheep. All of us like sheep have gone astray, Jew and Gentile alike, clean and unclean. The Lord had to lay on Jesus the iniquity of us all. This woman understands that. She understands. In closing, there are a couple of points I think that would be helpful to bring out here. One theological and one practical. First theological, what does this story tell us about God's inclusion of Gentiles into his covenant? Well, first of all, it tells us that God always planned to include the nations. This is not plan B, it's a plan A being worked out. And this has massive eschatological implications. One's view of end time should be supremely optimistic, believing that God will subdue the nations. He will conquer regions of Tyre and Sidon, China and Russia, Africa. He's the enthroned king. His weapon is the gospel. It's a double-edged sword. It converts those who embrace it. It condemns those who reject it. God is a man of war, to borrow the language of the Old Testament. He will conquer. He will subdue. He will conquer. He will subdue. Furthermore, Jesus cleansed the woman's daughter from a distance. He sanctified her. Set her apart from that demon. And I want you to know that if you are a Christian and you have children, he's done the same for your children. Being part of a household of believing parents places one in the arena of God's law, God's oracles, God's promises. That's why Peter said this promise is for you and your children. The most important thing you can do as a parent is bring your children to church. And the most important thing you can do as a parent is bring your church to the most healthy church you can find, even if you have to drive an hour away. The point is to be among God's people where you hear the word of God faithfully preached because this promise is for you and your children but that promise will not become a reality as a parent if you are delinquent and raising your child in the covenantal context of a local church that is faithful to the Lord that will help you this woman's daughter did not even physically meet Jesus she was cleansed from the demon by virtue of the mother's faith in Christ Secondly, more of a practical point. Let it be known that Jesus did require faith of this woman. It was uh, the scribes and Pharisees who prided themselves in their religious pedigree and heritage. They were cast out of the kingdom. They didn't come with humility. This woman understood she needed cleansed, right? 
She was unclean. She would agree with the Jews. I'm unclean. I need cleansed. She is you this morning if you understand you are unclean. She is you. You are her. But you must confess to God your uncleanness in order to enter the kingdom of God. You must have faith in Christ. You are not saved by being part of a Christian family. You're not saved because you were baptized. You're not saved because, because uh, you're a member of the church. You must go to Jesus. You must tell him of your uncleanness. You must admit that humbly. Beg him for mercy as the son of David, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. If you do that, the door has been cracked and you can push that door open in faith and you'll be invited in. to Sit at the table with God's family because Jesus promises those from the east, those from the west will recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Listen, you're either in the kingdom or you're outside of the kingdom. There's no neutral ground. There's no neutral ground. You must come to Christ and you must possess the type of faith of this woman. Was it a lot of faith? Well, Jesus said it was great faith, but comparatively speaking, it was great faith in the sense that apparently not many in Israel had that kind of faith. Jesus was just looking for any sort of faith. It was great in comparison to the no faith among most of Israel. You don't have to have big faith, but do you have great faith? Faith the size of a mustard seed that's great in comparison to no faith, even small faith in Christ will save. So go to him, run to him, so you can fellowship with God for all of eternity. Father, thank you for the message of your word. Lord, we thank you for its truths. We thank you for this wonderful account, Lord, very heartwarming of Jesus' playful interaction with this woman she understood in his nonverbal communication. She understood in the simplicity of her faith. Lord, what Jesus was after. We are not to try to clean ourselves up and come to Jesus. We're to come just as we are, confessing our sin, confessing our uncleanness, admitting our guilt. Lord, you will forgive. You will give to us a seat at the table. Lord, in the kingdom to be part of these ancient promises you made to Father Abraham so long ago. We thank you that this message of the gospel is going out into the world. It's conquering hearts, the hearts of the nations. Lord, help us to be ever vigilant. Lord, to seek the lost, to point them to Christ, having the confidence that you have promised that those from the east and the west will recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Thank you for our church and those who have gathered. Father, please bless us and seal these truths upon our hearts. We pray these things in the strong name of Christ our Savior we ask. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.